welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, uh, just, I know Jordan mentioned this at the beginning, but the seats look different. I know, uh, I really don't like them like this, so whatever that's worth, but they're this way because the next several weeks, uh, one of the things we're doing is our facility gets used by a lot of different groups and, uh, it's being used by a theater group. So it's set up this way, but we'll get back to, to bending it around. So it feels a little more like a living room and less like a lecture hall. That's just one point. But the other thing is at the retreat yesterday, Manuel mentioned Colleen led it, but uh, one of our leaders, Chris Bertelli, was also part of that. Some of you know I like to oh, play around with last names. So if you like it this way, Chris Peanut Butter and Bertelli Sandwich would be his name. But anyway, uh, he led it as well, and it was an amazing uh, time. I wasn't there, but I was around here all day and just heard wonderful things about what happened there. And we say this a lot, but we do in here has some significance. Worship, come to the communion table, which we will in a moment, uh, open the Bible together and try to engage in it. And so what happens in here matters, but what happens when we're gathered outside of here matters more because it's where things can get worked in, whether it's in a small group or a larger small group, but that's where things can get worked in more. That's where we go eyeball to eyeball. That's where the real stuff happens. So very encouraging what happened yesterday. With that, would you stand for our scripture reading? I'm going to be reading from John chapter 15, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 17 as we jump into this week. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Jesus here is nearing the end of his life and he's with his disciples, he's with his friends, and he offers up this teaching on obedience, on commandments, on following him. And in this passage, I'm struck by a series of words and ideas and images that don't really seem to fit together all that naturally. When you hear these words or ideas, you don't generally put them with some of the other words and ideas that are all packed into these few verses. Commands and love, for example, aren't always two things that go together. Obedience and joy are not two concepts that I typically associate with each other. Friends and commands and fruit and love would be another. Almost seems like two separate pieces of writing about two different topics and someone jammed them together into one paragraph without much concern for the editing process. And hopefully through the time we have this morning, we can unsnarl some of this a little bit. 
But after several weeks in this eternal living series, a series that I have said many times is extremely important in the life of Oak Hills. It has a history to it that runs back 23 years, and it's extremely important in my life for all sorts of raw, personal reasons that I've shared some, but I'm not going to bore you with all of that. But after so many weeks in this series, I think it's good for us to have a little bit of a recap of where we've come so far. We started by talking about the eternal kind of life that Jesus invites us to experience right now, this vision of a certain quality of life, an eternal quality of life that he's inviting us to experience right now. From there, we talked about choosing to put our confidence in Jesus for everything, deciding to at least enough of a degree, we're not suggesting 100%, but deciding to enough of a degree that Jesus is what he is cracked up to be. So we choose to trust him. We trust him to forgive our sins, to lead us through the challenges we encounter in everyday life, to sustain us when life doesn't make sense, to help us when we are in need, to take care of us when we die, and so on we can go. We then talked about being a disciple of Jesus. If we have confidence in Jesus, we think he's reliable, then it makes sense to follow him and be what the Bible calls his disciple or his student, or the word we used, to be his apprentice and learn from him how to live the way he would if he were in our shoes facing the exact situations that we must face. This isn't a paper-pushing kind of apprenticeship where we sign a dotted line and then file away the paper. Rather, this apprenticeship to Jesus happens down in the details of our everyday lives as we deal with things like conflict with those that we care about and love, or we deal with money or disappointment, or we deal with a frustrating boss or a sickness or an aching knee. Or we deal with shame that rises up within us on a regular basis. Or we deal with a myriad of other things. It is an apprenticeship to Jesus in everyday life detail stuff. Now what we haven't talked about much in this series is the way each of these topics build on the previous ones. There is a progression, in other words, in our spiritual growth and development. We're going somewhere In our spiritual growth. These things we have been talking about the past few weeks in this series are what Dallas Willard calls stages or phases of Christian growth. Not that we go through them once, check the box, and then we're done and all is well, but this is an ongoing cycle of spiritual growth. And the progression makes sense, just rational, simple sense on so many levels. We first learn to put our confidence or our trust. In Jesus. So just think about it. As this confidence grows and we start discovering the reliability of Jesus, we then choose to be his apprentice and let him teach us how to live. So we study his example. We're shaped by his teachings and by his words. We learn from him how to handle anger, lust, worry, fear, death, conflict. And many other things. And over time, as we apprentice with him, our inner being, our character, 
the stuff beneath the surface starts to take on his character. We become like him internally. And we are increasingly able to do what he did the way he did it. I've said this throughout, but I'm going to say it again. This is what it means to actually live Christian or be Christian. And it is a far cry from a one-time decision with certain eternal fringe benefits. Sometimes Christianity gets reduced to what happens to us after we die, when really Christianity is about what happens to us before we die. So now we come to today's topic, which is the stage of Christian growth Willard calls routine obedience. It's a really interesting phrase. It grabs us kind of right out of the gate. Routine obedience is doing the right thing in the right way without having to think about it or sweat over it. It is natural. It is instinctual obedience. It is riding a bike kind of obedience. It is driving a car kind of obedience. I don't think about it. I just do it because it's in me to do it. I like the phrase easy obedience. Now, I went to church from the time I was born. I grew up being part of a church. After college, I spent four years in a seminary with my head buried in all kinds of thick books. While I was in seminary, I started working as a pastor at a local church. And in all of those experiences, I don't ever remember hearing about easy or routine obedience to God or thinking in any way, shape, or form obedience was easy. It may have been said, it may have been stressed, but I missed it. I was a pastor for nine years. And I missed it. And then I got smacked in the head and I woke up to a vision of obedience that kind of enthralled me. Really different way of thinking about obedience. A way of obedience that kept calling my name and inviting me into it. Up until then, obedience was hard. Grinding. Demanding. And I don't think my experience was unique seems to me a high percentage of us hear the word obedience, and it triggers stuff in us. It triggers ideas like a demanding commitment to do the right thing, and the more demanding it is, the better. The harder the obedience is, the truer it must be. The more miserable obedience is, the more likely that's what God wants. The language of obedience, as we know, is often loaded with shoulds, oughts and shouldn'ts. It's saying no when we want to say yes and saying yes when we want to say no. So obedience requires a lot of gritting and grinding of teeth. Obedience hurts. And again, the image, the idea often associated with obedience is that it should hurt. And if it doesn't hurt, it's probably disobedience. So obedience is about doing what God wants because he says so. And we prove, underscore the word, that we love God by grinding our teeth and obeying his rules. His rules, as we know in this scheme, take the fun out of life. That's what they're intended to do. They're intended to keep us from doing what we don't want to do. Or from doing what we do want to do. So they make life drab. 
They make life dull. And this is what you sign up for. If you sign up to be Christian, you sign up for drab and dull and a kind of life you'd never choose, but you have to have because God says so. Our job is not to have fun in life. Our job is to obey God. This is the kind of ethic around this idea often. And it's no surprise this culture of hard obedience, as I'm calling it, is usually drenched with guilt and shame and failure. And guilt and shame and failure are a kind of badge of honor proving we're committed to obedience and to doing the right thing in the right way no matter what. So in a rough metaphorical way, we're sitting in a restaurant and dinner and dessert are over and we have had plenty of both, but our young son has left half of his chocolate cake and the icing is a third of an inch thick. Our young daughter has left all of her blueberry crumble and the sugary Sauron and Saruman are calling our name. Mike, I see you want this. And we can taste its goodness without even tasting it. But we know we shouldn't taste its goodness. So we jam our hands in our pockets and our right leg starts bouncing and we dart our eyes away from the seductive stare of these two sugary devils. And finally kind of antsy and irritated, we determine the only way out is to leave. So we call for the check. We take one last finger swipe of icing off our son's cake, and we hustle the family out the door. We obeyed, and we did the right thing. And it was hard, and it was exhausting, and we hated it. And now we need a nap. And as soon as we start napping, we dream about cake and about crumble. And you know something? It's true. Hard obedience like this, obviously I'm exaggerating, but hard obedience like this is often better than eating the cake and the crumble. And it is also true. There's an element of hard obedience in our life with God. There just is. There is a piece of just gutting it through with white knuckles and gritted teeth. But I have a few questions as we keep thinking about this. Is hard obedience as good as it gets until we go to heaven? Is hard obedience the abundant life Jesus has in mind when he says in John 10 and verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Is this full or abundant life, this grinding, teeth gritting kind of obedience? Are they one and the same? Is hard obedience what Jesus means in our scripture reading when he says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. In Matthew, or is Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20, the Great Commission, where is that promoting hard obedience when Jesus tells his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Is he saying, teach them to grit and grind their teeth and do the right thing in the right way, even though what they really want to do is the wrong thing in the wrong way. When Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Don't let anger rule in your heart. Turn away from lust. Lay down your worries. Love your neighbors. Care for the hurting. Help 
the poor. Was Jesus giving stiff rules for us to follow for no particular reason? Was he saying, I know you don't want to do this, but try really hard to love your neighbors and pray for them, or at least act like you love your neighbors and say you'll pray for them, even though you can't stand them. When Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Did he mean bite your lip and grit your teeth and look at your WWJD bracelet and try to do the right thing? Is that beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees whom Jesus called elsewhere whitewashed tombs full of the bones of the dead and whom he also ripped for cleaning the outside of the cup while inside was full of greed and self-indulgence? See, throughout the Bible, the theme is loud. The Christian life has some hard obedience, but hard obedience is not the essence of the Christian life. Jesus invites us to be his apprentices, last week's topic. He invites us then to train in his way of living. Remember last week, if I decided after this gig was over and I got tired of it, I wanted to become a plumber, I would find an expert plumber and be his or her apprentice and I would be trained in the way of plumbing. So Jesus invites us to be his apprentices and train in his way of living and as we cooperate in this training we gradually become the kind of person out of whom obedience easily and routinely flows when we need it. Instead of hard obedience that tries to do the right thing on the spot and in the moment, we become the kind of person who is able to do the right thing on the spot and in the moment. Easy obedience without really thinking too much about it, like riding a bike, driving in a car. Nobody wants to be the passenger in a car where the driver is practicing hard obedience. I should hit the left turn signal now and turn. That guy's lights turned red. I should tap the foot of, put my foot on the brake and slow down. I should not drive through that red light even though I want to. We don't want that. We want someone who easily obeys because they realize it's the best way. And a key that turns hard obedience into easy obedience is training. <clears throat> Spiritual growth, for some reason this eludes some of us, but spiritual growth happens just like any other kind of growth happens. God doesn't wave magic wands. Our cardio capacity does not increase by trying to increase it in the moment when it is needed. Halfway up a steep San Francisco hill on my way to an appointment is not the time to try to increase my cardio capacity. Our cardio capacity does not increase by trying. It increases by training. Doing certain things, over here, over there, whatever, to increase cardio capacity so when I need it, it is there. And in the spiritual life, it's the same thing. Engaging with scripture, being in prayer, 
gathering in community, celebrating the Lord's table, spending time in solitude, worshiping God alone and together are some of the exercises that train us in easy obedience. We engage in practices that shape us into a different kind of people and community so we're able to do the right thing in the right way without thinking or sweating. But there's another key that helps turn hard obedience into easy obedience. And without this key, even the best intended training can devolve into hard obedience. So let me get into this by asking, why does God give us his instructions? His teachings? Why does the Bible have so much in it about do this and don't do that? Why does he have guidance for us regarding anger, lust, sex, money, forgiveness, power, fear, conflict, anger, hate, etc.? Is there any sense to it? Or are God's guidelines just kind of random? Let's see. How can we make life miserable? Here's how. Tell them not to do everything they want to do. Is that what it's about? God's guidelines merely intended to squeeze the fun out of life and make it drab and dull. This gets us back to those strange combinations I mentioned at the beginning in our scripture reading. Love, commands, friends. What's that all about? Maybe most puzzling of all, you might have missed it, but in the middle of our scripture reading, this teaching on obeying Jesus' commands is interrupted when he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What? Commands, obedience, and joy? How does that work? So I want to talk for a minute about being the beloved as the first and crucial key to moving from hard obedience to easy obedience. And I want to get right to the point. I have been some degree of an intentional apprentice of Jesus since I was 19 years old. And for those of you scoring at home, that's 40 years of a stunningly flawed, frighteningly broken, ridiculously imperfect and incomplete journey virtually every step of the way for 40 years. And I am not painting in exaggerated strokes to garner compassion or favor for being real. Just happens to be true. And as I've said before, if you doubt me, might I recommend an interview with Julie, Sam, Abby, Izzy, Lauren, or Gus? And they'll let you in on it. But I've been on the Jesus path for 40 years. And many things have been important on the journey of inching toward Christ-likeness and learning the way of easy obedience. But one thing has proven to be the most important. And again, I'm in autobiographical mode here, not suggesting this is your thing. But one thing has been the most crucial for me. And its importance has been renewed countless times through God-orchestrated experiences, through words coming from a friend, through words that have jumped out from the pages of the Bible, and through the Holy Spirit's still small voice speaking to me at times that I would never have guessed. 
the most important component in my life with Jesus has been learning to receive and rest in his indescribable, inexhaustible, incomprehensible, immeasurable, incredible, unconditional, irresistible, relentless, logic-defying love. Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When I camp in that reality, peace is a companion. The sense of goodness is absolutely overwhelming. And obedience is easy and routine. Because I know Jesus' teachings, his rules, if you like that word, his guidelines and instructions are exquisitely good and they are designed for my good. They're intended to keep me in the flow of that amazing love. And once I've experienced it, the real question is, why would I want to step out of that flow? I do anyway. But it makes such complete sense to say, his guidelines keep me in the flow. Why would I want to leave it? See, every good, bad, and ugly particle of my being stirs with shame when I am out of the flow because of sin or because of apathy or because I'm distracted with something in life. But every good and bad and ugly particle of me stirs with hope when I'm receiving and resting in God's love. And what I mean by that is I'm experiencing it. I'm feeling it. I know that's not a fun word for some of you, but I'm feeling it. And I'm resting in it. There's something about it that stands as the key to practically everything else in my existence. This isn't some theoretical mind trick. My thoughts, my choices, my actual physical body, my words, my actions, my reactions, how I am in relationships are qualitatively different when I am living in the reality that I am God's beloved son and nothing can separate me from this reality. Not even the rotten choices I routinely make. Nothing can separate me or sever this reality of being God's beloved son. And just so the record is clear, for those of you who might be wondering, I have always had an industrial strength sense of being unlovable, unworthy, undeserving, and just too far gone. And here's the punchline. Obedience over the last 40 years has often, for me, been hard obedience. Striving, gripping, grinding to do the right thing in the right way to prove my love to God. To earn God's love for me. And it just doesn't work. And it is exhausting. 
you are my friends if you do what I command, has rung in my head as a test. Or maybe even more as a threat. And obedience is hard when you're scared. Obedience is hard when failure means you're out. Obedience is hard when there's not a solid and safe attachment to the one you are seeking to obey. We don't even need to think about this as it relates to God. We can just think about it as it relates to each other. If we are in a relationship and the culture of the relationship is you screw up, you're gone. You say the wrong thing, you're out. You misstep, see you later. You know what that's like to live in that environment. And what happens in that environment is we close ourselves down, figure out what the rules are, and tiptoe our way through them, hoping to follow them as best we can, and hoping the other person doesn't find out we haven't followed them perfectly, because if they do, things will sever. And that scares the daylights out of us. Kurt Thompson is a Christian psychiatrist who's written a good book called The Soul of Shame. And in it, he writes, we are all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. We are all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. I know a lot of people who found all sorts of ways to avoid the stirrings of their inner life. They are well practiced in the way of avoidance. They keep busy and they keep distracted to cover up and press down the deeper ache and desire. But I've never met anyone who, underneath the charade, underneath the pose, underneath the toughness, underneath the just obey, underneath the avoidance games, I've never met anyone who doesn't long to be looked for and loved. See, I would suggest to you that this lies beneath the ground of every one of our lives. We want to be looked for and we want to be loved. We want someone who's looking for us. And when they find us, we are enough. A desire for a connection that nothing can sever. A longing to be enough without having to keep proving we're enough. A desire to know in the depths of our soul that we are loved with an unshakable love no matter what. So the key to routine and easy obedience, I would suggest to you, is being the beloved of God. I think... The starting point of hard obedience, grinding obedience, becoming easy obedience is being the beloved of God, which means experiencing his love in greater measure, which means receiving and resting in his love as the default posture from which we now live, which means feeling his love. And I know that's not a good word for some of you. Feeling his love actually feeling his love it has not been my experience that this is easy it's been my experience that there are powerful spiritual forces scheming and conniving to keep us from receiving and resting in god's love and there are voices and committees in our heads 
determined to keep us from receiving and resting in God's love by constantly screaming things at us that are contrary to God's love. You aren't enough. You don't matter. You've screwed up too much. And so on. In verse 9 of our reading, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, we blow by this because it rolls off the tongue like the familiar lyric of a favorite song. But sit here for a second. As God the Father loves Jesus, Jesus says, so Jesus loves you. And I would suggest that God loves Jesus rather perfectly and quite thoroughly and unendingly all the way through every particle his love permeates. So he says, remain in my love. Abide in it. Stay in it. And here's where we get to another punchline. You see the rules, the guidelines, the instructions, the Bible were not randomly assembled to squeeze the fun or thrill out of this life. Rather, they were designed to put the fun and the thrill back into life. They, were de- they weren't designed to imprison human beings in a small cage of rules and regulations. They were designed to liberate human beings so they can become what they were originally created to become. John chapter 1 tells us Jesus was with God at the very beginning of everything. Jesus knows what makes a human being tick. You ever thought about that? He knows what makes you tick more than you know what makes you tick. He knows what we want. Not what we say we want, not what it looks like we want. He knows what we want and he knows what we long for and he knows what we desire way down. And his rules, if you like that word, And his ways and his teachings lead us into the satisfaction of our deepest longings and desires. So his way is the best way. His way is the good way. His way is the only way that we find the life that we are desperately looking for and find the one who is desperately looking for us. Would you pray with me, please? There's something, on one hand, silly about the way Christianity sometimes gets repackaged. And there's something sad about the way other times Christianity gets repackaged. seems to me on the one side, things get silly when it's all about me and how God can enhance me and what I want and kind of be the great endorser of my agenda. It gets sad when God is depicted as this thunderous, ticked off, quick to get angry being who loves it when we screw up. Let me suggest to you, leaning as much as I can into the teaching of the Bible, 
that through all that noise, you are God's beloved daughter or son. And his way is the very best way that you can live. Pursuing love is better than hate. Learning patience is just better than being angry. Being for the good is just better than being against everything. Taking risks, vulnerable risks in a relationship to show and demonstrate love is better than hunkering down behind a wall of insecurity. Forgiveness is better than bitterness. Just better. So Heavenly Father, as we continue to learn your way, we pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us the magnificence, the thrill, and indeed, as you say it, the joy of following your lead and learning easy obedience to your commands. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have this wonderful chance to come and celebrate the Lord's table. And how fitting. This symbol of love, this place of love, this reminder of the most loving thing ever done. Greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. And we come to this table to remember that Jesus laid down his life for his disciples, his friends, his apprentices. Back in the early church, this was actually called a love feast, communion. Because it was this big celebration of what God had done and how God had done things for them and now they were connected to each other through this unseverable love. And so they would feast together and celebrate this great love that God had shown to them, remembering it as the frame of life now and forever. So we invite you to participate in our communion celebration, to take your time with it, to not rush through it, to enter into this as a practice, an exercise that cultivates goodness in us and trains us in the way of Jesus.